So uh, when I've been married for about a couple years, uh, my wife and I, we were living in Searcy, Arkansas, and uh, we've been married for about a year and a half, and my dad calls me up, and he tells me he's going to do this thing called an iron butt ride. And so if you are not familiar with motorcycles and motorcycle riders, you probably have the same look on your face right now that I had on my face when my dad told me on the phone. I'm like, Dad, what in the world is an iron butt? You know, and he's like, he goes, oh, an iron butt is this thing that motorcycle riders do where you try to ride a certain distance in a specific amount of time and you get it verified on either end that you accomplished it, you get a patch. He's like telling me all these things you get. I'm like, yeah, that sounds awesome. He says, well, here's what I'm gonna do. He said, I wanna start, I'm gonna ride a thousand miles on my motorcycle in less than 24 hours. He said, I'm gonna start in North Carolina where he lived at the time. He says, and I'm gonna end my ride. He goes, I'd like to end it right there in Searcy, Arkansas, where you and Amy are. And, and you guys can be there to, to help welcome me. And Amy and I got kind of excited. We could tell it was a big deal to my dad, you know, and even though I'd never heard of an iron butt, I could tell he was excited about it, you know. And so we're like, yeah, that, that sounds great. And the thing is you had to like check in before you left wherever you departed. You had to check in with the fire department, with the firemen, and then they had to sign off on what time you departed. And then you had to go check in. They had to look at your odometer, check in at another fire department, and they had had to sign off in order for it to be an official iron butt. Because, I mean, who wants an unofficial iron butt? Like, I want the official thing if I'm going to do it. And so that's what you had to do. So we were supposed to meet my dad at the fire department. And he gave us kind of this time frame, about an hour-long time frame for when he thought he would be arriving I thought he would arrive in plenty of time. And so uh, Amy and I, we got up that morning and we were all excited. We made posters for him. We were gonna meet him you know, at the, at the fire department, welcome him, make him feel like a really big deal. So we get to the fire department and the time that we thought he was going to arrive kind of came and he gave us a window. So it wasn't that big of a deal, he wasn't there. But then we waited about 30 minutes and we waited about 40 minutes and he still hadn't gotten there. And I, I started to get a little bit nervous. So I like text him and I, he's not texting me back. I can tell he's not reading the text that I'm sending him. And at this point, I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. And my wife, Amy, we start talking. I can tell that she's like visibly kind of shaken by this. Like she's really concerned. And if you know anything about Amy's story, then you know, it's like she lost her dad as a teenager. And she, I remember, I'll never forget. She looked at me. She's like, Aaron, this is serious. She's like, things can happen to dads. Like a dad can die. You can lose a dad. And I started going, oh my goodness. Like, is, this, is my dad okay? Is he all right? So I'm calling him. He's not answering. And the hour goes by that he's supposed to show up and he doesn't show up. And we keep waiting. We keep waiting. And in that moment, waiting for his arrival, there was nothing that I wanted more in this life than to see his motorcycle pull in the parking lot. There was nothing that I wanted more than to see the smile on his face when he took off his helmet, than to throw my arms around his neck and to tell him that I loved him. Like I remember just waiting. I was filled with this longing for my dad to arrive, to get there. Now, the, the end of the story, obviously, my, my, my dad shows up. He showed up, you know, about, about 30 minutes past the deadline that he gave us. And we're just like, oh, you know, I like totally relieved. Like, dad, you're here. And I remember giving, we gave him this huge hug. And, and it was kind of funny. My dad was just completely oblivious to the fact that we were so worried. Like in his mind, he knew he was okay. He knew he was going to arrive when he said he knew he was going to get there. Like he just knew it. There was no concern but we were the ones that were worried. We were the ones that were filled with anticipation and longing for his arrival. You know, in Advent, as we enter into the Advent season, we're reminded this word Advent, it means arrival, arrival. And it's all about the arrival of the one who matters more in human history than any other figure, the arrival of Jesus. And so, of course, at Advent, you know, we remember Jesus' first arrival. And this is kind of what we typically think of with Advent, right? We think of the manger scene. And, and over the Christmas holidays, we'll come across many of these pictures where we see Jesus in a manger, you know, in a barn with animals and all these things. This is all part of the story, and it's important. 
Because part of Advent is we remember, we look back, we remember the fact that Christ came. But it's also a time to anticipate. It's not just about remembering. It is about looking forward, looking ahead and anticipating. Because you see, there's this promise. Christ came and when he left, he left us with this promise. He says, I am coming back. I'm coming back. Christ is coming again. I feel like sometimes it's a promise that because it's been so long, we don't know what to do with it anymore, and so we just don't even talk about it. There's kind of two extremes. Some people, it's all they want to talk about. And I've heard this phrase recently. Somebody told me that they were talking to somebody, and they said, yeah, they're, they're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, you know? And that was kind of their way of thinking that all they could think about was what's happening at the end, and it seemed like they were out of touch what was happening right now. But then there's some of us that we never think about what's at the end. You see, Advent is this season where we slow down and we go, oh yeah, he came and man, there's this promise. He is coming again. And we live kind of in between the two Advents. We have this unique time in history where we're in between the first arrival, waiting for the second arrival. And both of them, both of them shape us uniquely as we wait for arrival. The first Advent, it informs why we hope. You know, this, this first week of Advent, this candle that we've lit, it's a reminder of hope, like we're called to hope. It's one of the greatest like New Testament themes you see over and over again is we are called to be a people of hope. And as we look back, as we remember, it speaks into why we hope. But the second Advent, the second Advent informs us, how do we wait with that hope? So I want to look at both of those. First, as we remember, the first advent informs why we can have hope. You see, Jesus, Jesus was not born into a vacuum. Jesus was born into a particular time amongst a particular people who were shaped by particular longings. There was this anticipation in the people of Jesus' time. They were waiting for something, or better yet, they were waiting for someone over and over and over again in their writings, in the ancient writings that they had, the Hebrew Bible, there were these promises of a coming prophet, these promises of a coming king, these promises of the coming Messiah, the anointed one, and they were waiting for him. I think sometimes we feel like we can't connect with the Jewish people, and yet if you were a first century Jew, that anticipation you had, it was formed by the stories you'd heard and the promises you hoped in. Does that sound familiar? Like they'd all heard the stories of the Exodus, but they weren't there. They'd heard the stories of King David, but they weren't there. They'd heard the stories of the prophets, but they weren't there. But man, they were, they were infused with hope because of the stories and they were infused with hope because of the promise they were waiting for. So when Jesus shows up, man, everybody starts asking him. First, first John the Baptist comes and they say, hey, are you the one? And John the Baptist's like, no, there's one coming after me. I'm not the one. You know, they all just knew there's someone. And time, anytime anybody significant would rise up, they go, hey, are you the one? John the Baptist says, no, not it's me. It's, it's the one coming after me. And Jesus is met with the same questions. Hey, are you the one? Are you the one? And there's all these places he asks his disciples, what do people say about me? And the people say, oh, some say you're the prophet. Some say you're the Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist, you know, raised from the dead. He says, what do you say? They say, we say you're Messiah, which meant anointed one, which meant king. You see, they had this longing. They had this longing. But there's this interesting place in the Gospel of John where we see this played out in a way. And I never would have thought this would be the passage that God had me read from for first Advent. You know, typically in Advent, we're reading the birth narratives of Jesus. But in John chapter 4, we find this moment, we get insight into the hope and the longing that a first century Jewish person would have had 
You know, in John chapter four, Jesus finds himself at one of the most mundane, ordinary moments in a day-to-day life. He's sitting beside a well, which does not sound normal to us because we don't really have wells. I want you to imagine a water cooler at your office, okay? Or, you know, you're at the convenience store getting a big gulp or whatever it is, you know, this was the, this was the most ordinary day-to-day moment going to a well for water. And while Jesus is sitting there in John chapter four, there's this other woman there. She's, she has several strikes against her in the eyes of most Jewish people. She was a Samaritan, which they consider to be half-breeds. She, she was, uh, had been through several marriages, and the woman she was living with at the time wasn't even her married husband, which the Jews would have looked down their nose. There was all these strikes against her, and yet Jesus sits there by the well, and he starts having a conversation with her. And throughout the conversation, he reveals to her that he knows things about her that he shouldn't know, and her mind is kind of blown. And immediately she can see he's somebody significant. And so she starts, she says, hey, are you the prophet? You know, she kind of does the same thing. And then she starts asking him religious questions. You know, this is kind of what she does. She, she says, how do I, what do I deal with this guy's significance? So she starts asking about all the hot topic issues of the religious system of their day. Don't we do this? You meet somebody and the first thing you want to start, you find out that they have deep convictions. And so you start asking about the hot topic issues of the day to see where their stances are. This is what she does with Jesus. And so Jesus starts giving her these answers, but the verse I want us to look at is in verse 25. In verse 25 of John chapter four, Jesus has given her an answer and she still doesn't understand it. She doesn't completely understand it, but look what she says, verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ. Both of those words mean anointed one. I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Here we see a glimpse into this woman's heart that in the midst of the mess of her life, messed up relationships, broken relationships, broken marriages, in the midst of the mess of her life, being someone that was considered on the fringe, on the margins, in the midst of confusion where she's not even sure spiritually, religiously, there's all these nuanced religious teachings and beliefs, and she's not even sure. In the midst of confusion, brokenness, and pain, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. I know he's coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything. Man, what is this powerful moment that reveals the longing of her heart? I mean, I'm trying to imagine being her, like what Jesus says to her. He says it more clearly than almost any other place in the gospel. He looks at her and he says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Like, whoa. Can you imagine? Man, that was perfect time in the AC. That was amazing. (laughs) It's like, wow. Wow, I am he. So here's what I want us to understand, that the hope, the anticipation that she had, okay? This, like I said, Jesus wasn't born into a vacuum. You know, if you read through the Old Testament, there's promise after promise after promise after promise after promise after promise that Messiah is coming. And there's specific promises about him. In fact, we've got a few of these we're going to put up on the screen. I'm not going to read through every single one, but if we can get the, the first of these put up on the screen here, I'm just going to walk you through these. I want you to see, like, there's this prophecy that that there's gonna be a king who's the descendant of David. God said this to David. He said, listen, your throne will be established forever. Your throne will be established forever. There's gonna be a king who sits on your throne for eternity. Look at the next slide. And the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and we call son of the most high, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Someone from the line of David will come. And then these words are spoken to Mary. And she says, your son, Jesus, will sit on the throne. Look at the next one. It's this prophecy that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. But to you, O Bethlehem, who are, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. This prophecy that a ruler would come from Bethlehem. Go to the next slide. Look what it says. Now, after Jesus was born, where? Where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Here's this fulfillment. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler, and then Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Go to the next one. This prophecy, be born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The very next slide. It says, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He'll be a virgin and is fulfilled. A second, another prophecy. Let's look at the next one. That he'll be called out of Egypt. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Hosea 11.1. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew 2. It says they had to escape to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill all the children. So Joseph took his family and fled to Egypt. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What? Out of Egypt, I called my son. Next slide, another prophecy. That Jesus one day would ride in on a donkey, that the king would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Look at the next slide. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and Jesus sat on them. Very, verse 11, or sorry, it says, Hosanna to the Son, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, and this fulfilled the prophecy that he would ride in on a donkey. Let's go uh, a couple more. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. This is Zechariah 11. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Next slide. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him, what? 30 pieces of silver over and over and over, Zechariah 12, 10, that they will look on the one they have pierced. Inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, that when look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child. Next slide. This is the, the story of where we see they go to Jesus to, to, to break his legs, but he's already dead, so they pierce his side with a spear. In verse 37, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, here, here's, why, did, why did I put all this up there? Here's what I want you to see. Each one of these prophecies, they were all written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Hundreds of years. Some of them 700 years before Jesus would would walk on this earth, be born on this earth. Prophets were given words by God Almighty to predict what it would look like when Messiah came. And then this woman sitting at a well, Jesus says, I'm here. 
I'm here. Hey guys, God, God is not in the business of breaking his promises. You see, in the first advent, in the first arrival of Jesus, we see that God is not just a promise maker, but he is a promise keeper. He has said that he would come and he came. And he's faithful and he's true and he holds out to what he said he's going to do. We have hope. The first advent tells us why can we have hope? We have hope because when God speaks, it happens. You can trust it. When he speaks, it happens. He said, I'm going to send Messiah, and Messiah came. So as we remember the birth of Jesus in this season, as we remember the first advent, may it just bolster our confidence that God is faithful, that he is able and willing to do all that he says. You know? But you know, just like the Israelites were kind of in an in-between, they had heard the stories and they were hoping for a promise, we too are in an in-between. There is another promise. There's a second advent that Jesus came and he promised that he would come again in this second advent. I believe it doesn't necessarily show us why we hope. We hope because we've seen that he's faithful in the first advent. But the second advent, it informs how do we wait with hope? How do we wait with hope? What does it look like in this in-between? I don't know if you've ever felt this before. I mean, it'd be really easy to get caught up in this idea that, okay, yeah, Jesus came, I get it, he died, he resurrected, I've heard the stories. They're all back there. What does that have to do with right now? What does that have to do with my real life, my real problems, my real struggles, my real hardships, my real suffering that I'm going through right now? How does remembering, how does that, how does that give me hope? Well, first we have to understand the promise of the second advent, the promise of the second coming. Look with me, if you will, in Revelation chapter 21. This is one of my, one of my favorite, favorite passages. Revelation chapter 21. This is the apostle John. And he is, he's relaying what God has revealed to him about what is yet to come. The apostle John, he says this. He says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell among them. God does not say distant, that there's a promise that God is coming near, nearer than you can imagine or hope for. He's coming near, that God's dwelling will be with the people. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, he said, I am making everything new. I'm making everything new. Guys, this is a promise. Just like all those promises that we read on the screen that God fulfilled, that he was faithful to fulfill, this is the promise when we get caught up in those moments where it feels like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, 
that every headline we see, everything that is around us is just about pain and death and suffering and sorrow and war and bitterness and jealousy and envy and all the poisonous, rotten things that threaten to crush our hearts in this life. There's this promise. There's this promise that Jesus is coming. He's coming. And when he comes, he's going to make all things new that every hardship we go through, he will make it beautiful. He'll redeem it completely. Every good experience you have, he goes, hey man, it's good, hold on to it, but it's just a fraction. The best is yet to come. This is what John, the revelator in Revelations, he's trying to hold out for us. You guys, I've seen, I've seen it, I've seen the promise. This is what's coming. And the New Testament is just chock full of this promise. And too often we just dismiss it and we go, yeah, that's about the future. You know, that was about then, that's about then. What does that have to do with right now? Guys, it has everything to do with right now. When you understand the bigness of the hope that God holds out for us, it has everything to do with how we live right now. The Apostle Paul, he writes about this in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I know I'm kind of flipping all over the place this morning. Uh, just bear with me. We're going to read Romans chapter 8 here. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about hope. He's going to talk about hope. And the hope that we have in verse 22, Romans 8, 22, listen, listen to this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Guys, that's what we're experiencing. We look around the world and all the junk that is going on around us, it's like all of creation is just groaning, moaning for something more. He says, not only so, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we've seen the first advent. Christ came, we've seen it. He gave us his Spirit so that we could keep living into it. He goes, we have the first fruits of it. And even us, we groan inwardly, inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But man, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. He says, listen, we don't have it yet, but it's coming. We hope for it. Now, hope, I think, sometimes loses its richness and meaning for us because we get influenced by this worldly understanding of hope. You know, the worldly understanding of hope is only connected to our current circumstances. In other words, here's how we use the word hope. You know, somebody asks a question, hey, are you going to get a Christmas bonus? It's like, I don't know. I hope so. You know, it's like this, I'm not totally certain, but I kind of hope it's going to happen. I think about that day with my dad on the motorcycle. Amy and I, man, we were worried. Is my dad going to arrive? I don't know, but man, I hope so. There was no certainty about it. It was just almost like wishful thinking. Hey, are you going to pass the class? I don't know. I hope so. Hey, are you going to get the job? I don't know. I hope so. Hey, is the cancer going to go away? I don't know. I hope so. Hey, will the marriage be reconciled? I don't know. I hope so. And we use the word hope as if it's referring to something that is uncertain. It's almost like it's wishful thinking. That to hope for something feels like wishful thinking. But see, this is worldly hope. This is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is totally different. See, we understand that what we hope for, in fact, the Apostle Paul will say it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, man, if it is only for this life that we have hope, then we are to be pitied more than any other human beings. Guys, our hope is so much more than this life. 
Our hope goes far beyond just the, the resolving of our current circumstances. Hebrews 11.1 1 would say it this way, that faith, this thing that we have in Jesus, faith is being certain of what we hope for. We're certain of it. That picture, that, that picture of, of Jesus coming and restoring and renewing everything, guys, that is what we cling to. It's what we cling to. And if we get distracted by the worldly form of hope, man, it will sink your faith. I've talked to so many friends, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus. They have built their faith on this idea that if they will do all the right things and be a good Christian and pray the right prayers, then somehow everything in this life will work out for the good, for their good right now and the right here. And guys, that's just not true. Jesus himself looked at his followers and he said, guys, hey, in this life, you will have trouble. It's gonna come. In this life, you'll have trouble. But then he says, take heart because I've overcome the world. I've overcome it. And there's something else coming. There's more that is coming. There's hope that is coming. You see, the first advent shows us that, man, we can trust the promises. We can trust that he's true. But even more than that, the first advent fills us with the spirit of God that Jesus leaves and he puts his spirit in us so that we keep walking in the now, like we believe that the kingdom is actually breaking out all around us, that just like Jesus put a body on the love of God, he calls us to do the same thing. Why do we serve YES? Why do we serve NAHT? Why do we work for justice in our city? It's because we've gotten a glimpse of what's to come in the first coming. And he has said, go, go into all the world. Go into all the world, make disciples, be my witnesses, go. And as we wait, as we go, we're filled with hope, we're filled with hope. I love this picture of Amy and I waiting on my dad on the motorcycle because we were uncertain and our uncertainty caused us to be filled with anxiety, caused us to be filled with worry, the wringing of our hands. But man, when my dad showed up, he wasn't worried at all. He knew the whole time. Like he was the one that was arriving. <laughs> He knew he was going to get there. He knew when he was going to get there. He wasn't concerned about it at all. And guys, this is the posture of our Father God. He's not looking at the world going, oh man, how am I ever going to, oh, I didn't know they were going to do that. Man, how am I going to fix that one? No, he knows. He knows when he's coming. He knows the hour and the time. He knows everything that he is going to do to renew all things. And he's not worried about a thing. And did you know that this is the demeanor and the posture that he longs to put into your heart? This is why he gives us the Holy Spirit. So that as we wait, come what may, this life can throw whatever it wants at us. But we are rooted, anchored in the hope Jesus is coming. And man, when he comes, all things will be made new. This is why people look at Christians and they go, why in the world... How, how do they go through hard stuff? How do they suffer like that and still be full of joy? How do they go through hard stuff and feel, still be full of peace? How can they be persecuted and still love the people that persecute them? It's because we're anchored and rooted in the hope of what is to come, not in the current circumstances of our lives. As I can't, I can't encourage you enough, I, I don't know what your circumstances look like right now. As you come into Advent, as you come into this season, I know some of us, for some of you, life is great right now. And that's amazing. Praise God. 
Like that is a glimpse that he's at work in your life. But man, there are some of you, it's like, there are just, there's hardship, there's struggle, there's strain, there is, there's relational strain in your marriages. There's strain at work. There's strain with coworkers. There's strain with your future. Like, where's God calling me? What does he want me to do next? Am I gonna finish school? Am I not? There's, there's all these places of strain. There's some of you that are dealing with chronic pain. And you go, man, will God ever take the pain? Yes, he will take the pain. I promise. But the hope is not in this life that he'll take the pain. He can, and sometimes he does. And when he does, we go, thank you, God, for a glimpse of the kingdom now. But when he doesn't, we go, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Guys, in Advent, we're filled with hope filled with hope. There's so much he is going to do. Will we be a people who trust in his promises when we look back this season and we remember that Christ came? May he fill us with hope and trusting that, man, he's coming again and it will be glorious. It will be glorious. So this morning, I want to just pray for us and we've got communion out all around the room. And as we come to the table, as you get the cup, which remind us of the blood of Jesus poured out for us. If you get the bread, it reminds us of the body of Jesus, both of which were given at his first advent, his first arrival. I want you to just talk with one another. Just ask, man, how does that picture of Revelation 21, new heaven, new earth, all things renewed, how does that change how you walk through the now? How does hope in that future, how does that affect how you walk through stuff in this life. And just share with one another. Pray with one another. If you'd like someone to pray with you or for you, we'll have some men and women at the Respond Banner. We'd love to pray for you, pray with you. So let me pray, and then let's just go into a time of communion and ministry and prayer with one another. God, I love you. Man, God, I just, I, I hold on to hope. And you are faithful. You are true. You don't make empty promises. This, this Advent season, when we look back on the birth of Jesus, we look back on the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God, would you just let that fill us with hope that you are true, you're a truth teller. And Father, will you help us let the end of all things, the end of this age, fill us not with dread or worry or anxiety, but God, will it fill us with hope that you are faithful, Jesus, that you're coming, as we wait, as we wait for you, would you fill us with a longing? Help us to wait patiently. Help us to wait full of hope. Even in the midst of the worst circumstances, may we be filled with heavenly hope, godly hope, the hope of certainty. You are coming. You are coming. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come dwell amongst us as we commune, as we minister to one another, and as we worship. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.